You are listening to the Bridge Community Church Podcast out of Warrington, Virginia. Our church exists to connect you to God, others, and the marketplace. For more information, you can visit us online at bridge4life.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you are blessed by today's message. It is good to see everybody here, and uh, looking forward to today's message as we're continuing on in the series toward called Genesis Foundations for an Unsteady World. Today I'm covering a very popular story, Noah and the Ark. However, I'm going to cover this in an angle that you probably have not heard before. Not that I, in other words, typically people like to jump into where the flood is happening and the ark is afloating and the, you know, and I'm going to go a little before that because there's some important lead-in information that I think even still affects us today. And so if you would stand for the reading of the word, we're going to go to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Let's everybody read together. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now Jesus, I pray as we look at your word, in this passage, Jesus, even as we read it, I'm sure there were folks who felt stretched by what they read here. And we pray that your insight would flow not only just into our heads, but into our hearts. And I pray that we can see, God, that you are still honoring your commitments, your covenant, in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. 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 The Lord bless you. You can be seated. So I'm assuming that by reading that, you may have picked up a few phrases here and there that you probably thought, hmm, that's going to be interesting to see how Pastor Greg explains that one today. Because there are some phraseology, like I said, we have a tendency to jump into the familiarity of the story and we miss some of these, what I call, early details that lead into the story. The other thing is this, the story of Noah has been somewhat romanticized. And when I say romanticized is this, the more frequently we tell it, the more we have a way of telling it so that it gives us warm fuzzies. And we inadvertently start changing little itty-bitty things about the story. So since I'm not going to be speaking directly about the ark, but the things that led 
to the reason for the ark being built, I want to talk to you a little bit, just I call it these factoids, so that you can have a clear understanding a little bit about the ark that Noah built and how God used it. So here's some insights, and there's going to be quite a few of them, but let me give them to you. So first of all, when it comes to this flood, sometimes people go, well, why don't I ever hear about this when I went to science class? Well, first of all, you may, you may not know this, but in world history, every major ancient culture tells a version of a worldwide flood. Now, that's interesting. Now, they have a different angle. They have different reasons as to why they think it happened. But every ancient major culture had a story of a worldwide flood. Now, that tells you something there. That it was more than just a, a fable that was told over and over. This says something must have happened because they all recorded, but they all recorded it from a different angle, as in particular, their particular faith, trying to explain why it happened. So there's something to be said that this could be or is supported by, by that type of history. The second thing is this. The average lifespan of the patriarchs before the flood was 900 years. Some lived a little shorter than that, and some lived a little longer than that. So you can imagine the mass of wealth that a person could have based on their own history and their experience. Sometimes people say, it's impossible for human, the human race to have developed so quickly using the creation account. But when you take this into account, you know, if you're 900 years old, you're smart. You don't study history. You are history. I mean, just, let's just look. Nine, let's just go back 900 years. If you were 900 years old today, they still believe the world's flat. So you have come through, you know, the world being discovered that it's round and that the universe doesn't rotate around planet Earth, it rotates around the sun. I mean, there's a lot of, you can imagine, you're not studying history, you are the history. You know all these things, and so uh, the, the wisdom that a person, and so when you start having this as the average lifespan, you can see how culture was able to propel itself so quickly and develop so, so fast. After the flood, the average lifespan of the patriarchs dropped rapidly and leveled off, and we read this in Genesis 11, and we read that Jesus, or God is the one who said he would number the, man, uh, the days of man, and we read that. Here are a couple other things. Noah was actually 600 years old when the flood occurred. How's that for reinventing yourself for a later stage in life, right? He was 600 years old. So a lot of wisdom, a lot of experience. Here's some things you may not know. Lamech, his father, died five years before the flood. So as Noah received this word from God and then began to build his, the, the ark, his father was alive. He only died five years before the flood uh, happened. And here's the other part of it. How many have ever heard of Methuselah, the oldest man in the Bible? Did you know that was Noah's grandfather? And if you'll go through the genealogy and the, and the ages and everything and you do the math, and you'll, this might surprise you, he either died right before the flood or he died in the flood. Because his 969 years of age and it says he died, that was the year of the flood. So when you look at this, not only does Noah have a vast wealth of knowledge himself, being 600 years old, right? But he also has this wealth of knowledge of his grandfather, Methuselah, and being able to pull on his wisdom, because certainly as a family, they would have been aware of the activity that Noah was engaged in. The other thing is this, it took Noah 120 years to build the ark. How's that for a project that, honey, you just got to wrap it up at some point? 
120 years. But it also says a lot about the guy's faith. Okay? I mean, sometimes we just think, oh, he got this idea, you know, and he followed through, and, you know, God. I want you to hang on to a vision for 120 years. And not only hang on to it, build it. For 120 years, you're working on it. So that, I think that shows you the depth of commitment, the depth of his uh, follow-through on his belief. And by the way, you know, here you are, Noah, and you're saying it's going to rain, and everybody's like, what's that? Okay? A couple other things about the ark. The ark of uh, Noah built was about 450 feet long. It was 75 feet wide and 45 feet tall. I don't expect that to go cause any ahas. But the equivalency by putting in uh, the various levels and, f and floors in the ark, this was equivalent to 500 railroad cars. How would you like to sit at a railroad crossing while 500 cars went by you? <laughs> you know, be a, but it, so when you start taking into this account and it says that all the animals were accounted for, some people have said, I don't see how that's possible. When you see the size of this thing, you go, oh, that's definitely possible. 500 railroad cars equivalent in size? Yeah, absolutely. It could have been pulled off easily. It, 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 the, the science, the math, it works. Another thing is this. The misnomer that they came two by two. You say, what? Yes. Familiarity of the story causes us to massage the story. Genesis 7, 2 through 3. The ark contains seven pairs of every kind of clean animal. Ah, see, see how we can sometimes just read something or be influenced by the popular culture trying to tell us a story? And only one pair of every kind of unclean animal. It also says that it contains seven pairs of every kind of bird. Now I know there's people pulling out their Bibles or their iPhones and they're checking this out to make sure that Pastor Greg is not ad-libbing to the scripture. That's why I gave you the rep. But I'm just showing you that sometimes familiarity with a story causes us to miss very, very important details. Because here's the thing. As soon as he got out of the ark, he offered a sacrifice to God. If he didn't have more than one pair, he just eliminated a species every time he had sacrificed to God. See, you didn't think of that, did you? Yeah, so God said, hey, you need to have seven pairs of these because that's going to be a sac some of those are going to be a sacrifice for me later on. The other thing is this. Uh, Noah was on the ark for one year and ten days. It says it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, but it took a while for the waters to recede, and even when it did recede, and even when did the ark uh, come to be settled on a mountain, it doesn't say that God gave the clearance, and finally God gave clearance, and the day that he walked off of the ark was one year, ten days. That was Noah's version of COVID. Okay? So, so anyway, those are just a few things, but let me touch on this before we get into the main part of the message. So what do we do when faith collides with science in regards to creation? I'm pretty sure none of you have opened your history books and read the story of Noah and the ark in your history books. I'm positive it has never come up in your science class. 
And yet, here we are preaching that this is a story that did happen. I've given you some evidences here of how even the world uh, cultures of that day all had a story about a flood in their, in their history. And so there's always, a, you know, Pastor, what about this carbon dating? What about all this? And how do you account for that? And, well, first of all, let's go, let's just be, acknowledge the elephant in the room. Science has not always been right. A thousand years ago, they said the earth was flat. And if you sailed too far, you know, you're going to fall off the edge. And they were so convinced that they felt any other theory was a threat to culture. And you could get executed for saying that the earth was not flat, but it was round. And, and then when they decided that there was a rotation, you could get executed for not saying this. They had created a theology that said the earth is the center of the universe. The universe rotates around the earth. And somebody came along and said, no, it rotates around the sun. That was a big deal. It, got, it could get the guy killed. Okay? And then, of course, science has finally caught up and since then revised a lot of things. And it, the reason I say that is this. Sometimes we look at science as law when science is a journey. So I didn't discount science. What I'm telling you is science is a journey. And we can't always be certain of what we know today will be the certainty of next year and the year after. Why? Because science is a journey. We're constantly learning and growing. But here are a couple other things let me point out to you. By the way, as a pastor, I'm not anti-science. So let me just, in case somebody's new and goes, this guy like anti-science? No, I'm not. But I just want to make sure that I have... Uh, science as a tool and not science as a God and and I don't want science to be my religion I want my science to be exactly that science and it's ever-evolving so first of all let's let's note this when we see some tension between what the Bible says and science first the Bible never says that every miraculous work of God is recorded for us the Bible tells us enough so that we can have faith in God. The Bible does not have every miracle that God has ever done. Now, I know that surprises you, but go to the end of the Gospel of John, and John says these are the things that Jesus has done, but not everything that Jesus has done has been recorded because otherwise there would not be enough books in the world to contain it. That's what, the gospel, that's what John wrote about Jesus, that, hey, he says, I provided highlights. I am not providing an exhaustive, here is everything, that every miracle that Jesus ever did. And so we have to know that the context of the Bible is not to tell us everything, but to tell us enough that we can be confident in having faith in God. Does everybody follow me? So, all the, so every, everything about the universe being created... Every little detail of how it happened is not there. It's enough so that we can have confidence. The second thing is this. Mainstream science doesn't accommodate or account for the miraculous. Science doesn't have the, the law of the miracle. I mean, when was the last time you were in a science project and they were explaining something and you go, well, what happened here? Oh, that's the part we can't explain. We call it a miracle. And then they move on. No. You know what science does? Science attempts to define that miracles cannot happen. And so when there's something that is called a miracle, science focuses on it to explain it away so that it can't be called a miracle. It's an underlying flaw in science. There's no miraculous. 
There's just stuff we don't know. I'm like, wow, that's really arrogant. I mean, think, just, think, just think of that. There's no such thing as a miracle. There's just things that we don't know yet. And once we know and can explain it, it will no longer be a miracle. And I'm like, wow, that's really an arrogant statement. When you look on it, and that's an underlying premise. That's why, that's why I say I'm not anti-science. What I want science to be understood is this. It is a tool, but it makes a lousy God. I thought there'd be more amens on that. But I'm just telling you. Okay, so pastor is not anti-science. It's a wonderful tool that we have. But again, I trust this book. I trust that it tells me things that I don't know, and I trust it in things that it will never let me know. How many know if he's God, there's got to be something about him that he knows that we don't know? That's what makes him God and us followers. Okay, so God tells us enough so we know what we need to do, but God never tells us everything we probably couldn't handle everything aren't you glad that even sometimes he doesn't answer the prayer request that you thought was such a great idea and then a month later you went yeah that was a really bad one <laughs> I am so glad he did not answer that the, the day you prayed it it just looked like a wonderful idea 30 days later you're like thank you Jesus that you ignored that one that could have been a train wreck yeah he he knows things we don't know and Sometimes, you know, it sounds like a cop-out, but it's not. It's just acknowledging he's God, I'm not. And, I, and listen, we need to stop trying to be God. Amen? All right, so let's get on to the story. But before I do, here's a little resource for you. I don't do this too often, but I thought it would help you. There's two places you can check out online or even go there if you want. There's the thing called the Creation Museum. It's just outside of Cincinnati on the, on the Kentucky side. And uh, it's Creation Museum. You can access it on site, they are online as well. Some really good information there. I give that to our students and young adults and anybody else that's interested in this. And then the other one is there's the Ark Encounter. That's gotten a lot of press over the years. It's also in Kentucky. There's a website there. They've built a life-size scale Ark so that you can actually go there and walk through it and kind of get a feel. So it's a, and here's the cool thing about it. They're only 45 minutes apart. So if you're going to go out there, you might as well just spend a couple days and do both of them. And no, I was not given a fee or a referral to put this up. I just want you to be, there's, sometimes there's resources we don't know are out there, and we need to be aware of these resources. And uh, some really good material and some good insight. So anyway, number one, let's go back to that pr uh, passage we read today now. So I've addressed everything that happens after the passage that I read today. So let's go to Genesis chapter 6. First one, read the first point. Man's outward struggle is the result. It's the result of an internal spiritual battle. There's been a significant shift now in culture, and this is what it says in Genesis. Genesis 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. That is a key phrase. He says, not only is man capable of doing evil, he's driven by it. He's controlled by it. It has become his thought process. In Genesis 6, 11 and 12, he says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And look at this. We didn't read this today, but I am now. Was full of violence. 
So this evil inclination has a tendency to eventually erupt in violence. The Bible tells us this in John 10.10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Let me tell you where sin is. Sin wants to go from just violation to violent and even taking death. Or, 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 or introducing death, taking somebody's life. So God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So the insight here is this. Now this corruptness has taken control of man. And with man living so many years, between the length of life and the corruptness of the heart, that creativity that God gave man, that God had creative power, that creativity now by man is being corrupted. And instead of having inclinations for good, man is inventing ways to do evil. And we're going to get to that here in just the second part. But catch this. Man's creativity is no longer creativity to do good. It is creativity to do evil. He said every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. So now that creative power that God gave man is completely destructive but you know we see this in the New Testament Jesus said this in Matthew 10 15 19 for out of the heart come evil thoughts murder adultery sexual immorality thought theft false testimony slander the battle on the outside is a product of a battle on the inside he's saying the battle starts internally in all of us in, in, he, in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul wrote this, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. If I stopped it there, and if I would have read that verse with a certain voice inflection and some, some animation in my body, you know, that would have produced a shout of amen. But here's what I want you to be aware of. What is a stronghold? He goes on to describe it. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. A stronghold is something that I believe in my mind that does not agree with God's word. So a stronghold is something that I firmly believe that is, in con is, con is contradicted by what God's word has to say. And it says the way you demolish those strongholds is you have to take captive every thought. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read that, I go, do you know how many thoughts I have? <laughs> Whew. Take captive every thought. Oh, my goodness. I mean, like, does it, am I the only person? How many of you have more than one thing flying through your head at a time? How many of you have ever gone into the room and forgot why you walked in there? Good. I'm seeing some young people lift their hands. That's a positive. Why, you know, because our, our brains are running so fast. And I'm thinking, every thought? Wow. So basically, you're committed to a lifelong journey. This is where you start to discover a relationship with Christ is not an experience, an event. It is a journey. Why? Because we have this inclination of, the, of, a, of a sinful nature that is in us, that is constantly wanting to overtake areas that we have gotten victory in, and it's a constant battle, a constant just monitoring of who we are. You go on in Romans 12 too, he even expands on this further, the Apostle Paul. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of what? We would naturally as Pentecostals go, 
Well, that should say heart. No, it tells you that transformation happens between your ears. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. So the obstacle to figuring out God's activity for my life is to address the strongholds that are in my head. And so we read that this actually goes all the way back to the time of Noah. Now we know that sin entered the world under Adam and Eve, but now by this time when Noah is coming along, God says, man, this is just literally, it has gripped not only people, it has gripped culture. The culture is naturally inclined to do evil. The, the culture is naturally inclined for violence. And that's why God was ready to take such radical action. Number two, read this out loud. God created. Now, I talked on this a little bit last week. This is going to be an interest of you because you probably have not heard this segment of scripture addressing God created marriage to be a sacred institution. So, I'm going to tell you something that I even had to say in the first service. I really need you to focus for the next 10 minutes or I'm going to lose you. You know what I mean by, I mean like losing focus, like where this is headed. This is like a 10 minute segment in the service. Like I, you, I assume that you're always paying attention. <laughs> but I like really put a little more effort into it and you'll see why. I'm... I'm, I'm confident this next segment's going to stretch you, but it's going to stretch you in a positive way, in a good way, and hopefully you'll ne never see this passage the same way again. So we read last week that God said marriage was between a man and a woman. He said a husband and a wife, that, that the woman was a helpmate, and a father should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Okay? Now, it tells us in the passage that we just read a little earlier it says that every inclination of man's heart was evil. So man is now engaged in creativity on how to do wrong. Knows what God wants. How can we play with what God is asking? How can we distort it? That's critical to have that as a background. Because it says here, the sons of God saw the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old men of renown. The phrases that I want you to see there, he says it twice, the sons of God. He does not say the sons of human. He says the sons of God were marrying the daughters of humans. Do you see that? Okay, this is where I said, I really need you to stay with me on this. And then I'll give you the point at the end. Interesting phrase. So we need to go, what is the phrase being used? In the Hebrew, Hebrew, it is ben Elohim. And this means divine ones. It's also translated as angels. What? Angels were marrying the daughters of humans? See, notice how quiet it just got in the room. So far, I've not left scripture yet, have I? Okay? That's why I said this is very delicate, so stay with me on this thread. There's other places that it's translated, Ben Elohim is translated the same way. It's in the book of Job, chapter 1, verse 6, chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 38, verse 7. It says, the angels and Satan went to God to talk to him about Job. Okay? And it's translated angels there. Why am I using Job? 
I'll get into more of this next week. Job was a man who lived in the book of Genesis, but he never got mentioned in Genesis. We actually believe he lived around the time of Abraham. Because Job, now see, now I'm telling you next week's message. Job lived to be 200 years old. Abraham lived to be 180. Make sense? And I'll give you more evidence on that next week. So, so it's important for us to understand this word in as many contexts of, of the day that it was being used. And Job would also be one of those because he was in that time period okay, of Genesis. So he also uses that word. So suddenly our brains go, boy, I think Pastor may have drank some decaf today. Okay, so far I've stayed with the scripture, correct? Genesis, Job. So the problem is this, we have misunderstandings about the biblical view of angels, and we have been more informed by the Hollywood's version of angels. And you said, prove it. Well, I just happened to be ready for that question today. So let me walk you through, and get to this, this, this will relate to marriage, so just hang there. So first of all, let's go to Matthew 25, verse 41. This is Jesus. Would everybody agree Jesus is a safe quote? <laughs> That's just to see if you're still listening to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his what? Does it say demons? It says what? See, the problem we have is we have already decided that angels are good, demons are bad. True, except the Bible uses the word angel to describe both celestial beings on both sides of the aisle, and we have to pay attention to the context the word is being used. Angel does not mean good. You have to look at the context. It says that Satan comes as an angel of light. Angel of light. Sounds good. There's only one problem. It starts off with the word Satan. Okay? So Satan is compared to an angel of light. So the word angel is getting its good or bad connotation from the word Satan. Y'all follow me? So you have to, this is where I said, man, hang with me. You have to... Stop thinking that just because it says angel, it's good. You have to pay attention to the context. And that's what happens when we come into Genesis. We go, well, what are the good angels? Why was God letting good angels do that? Hmm. That's an assumption on our part. Because in Job, it says Satan and the angels. Well, those were the fallen angels that were going to God to complain about Job. You all with me? Okay. Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels, where? In heaven. heaven. Notice there's not the reference to the other angels. It just says the angels in heaven. So by the fact that Jesus would lob that in as an example says that there was discussion or a belief system that angels possibly were trying or had or could. And so he makes, it, he makes this to say, but no, the, they will not be like the angels in heaven. Which means it sounds like there's some other angels who tried something. 
Y'all with me? Okay. Here's some other things that make sure that we have a biblical view of the angels. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, pause. Angels can sin. Do you see that? He didn't say demons. That's our description. <laughs> but, he, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. Do you see that? You have to read the context of how the word angel is being used, rather than a good, whether it be in a good or a bad. In this context, it's bad, but they were called angels, correct? Then you come to Jude chapter 1, verse 6. I know that many of you just love the book of Jude. It's all of one chapter, and sometimes you read things there, and you go, not sure what's being said, but it's inspired. That's why it's in the Bible. Hey, there's actually some great theology in there. Here's one of them. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he, he has kept in darkness bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. This is some great theology because it is telling us this. God has deemed some of these fallen angels to be so powerful that he has taken them off the playing field with human beings and he has gone ahead and bound them and all they're doing is waiting for judgment. That's a merciful God saying, I don't think you can stand up to them, and so I'm taking them off the playing field. I've taken Satan's aces out of the deck. He has no aces. I've leveled the playing field. I've taken demonic activity that could overwhelm you, and I've gone ahead and put them in their chains, and to this day, they just wait judgment. They are given no freedom to roam earth anymore. How many of that's a merciful God? Now all of a sudden you start to see, wow, God, I can't. that's how you can say, I can make it. Why? Because God's already taken the things off the table that could overwhelm me. Amen, please. Okay. All right. Let's move on. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How many just learned that for the first time? You will be used... To judge angels. Just as God will judge our will, God says we will judge the angels. Wow. So that means those fallen angels who messed up our lives will now have to face their victims. Oh, God is just. He says, look, I'm not just going to pass judgment on Satan and his following. I'm going to bring in those who were victimized by him and say, you judge him with me. How many are, I'm for that. Yeah, absolutely. So we will be a part of the, of the judgment. Now you look at this, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. So we know that they can take on human form. You, you know, I'm just reading the scripture today. Because I could have like said these things and some of you go, yeah, I think Pastor, I think Pastor Lisa messed with his coffee today. He's just, you know, he's getting some harebrained theology. I've just, all I've done is read, eat, just read the Bible. But here's the thing. On top of this, we also know that fallen angels can also take on manifestations. Listen to me. Satan showed up in paradise 
in the form of a snake. Right? That was paradise. Now that paradise has been lost, the question you come to is, do you think they've lost their physical manifestation? I think they still can. I think they still can. I think he, So here, here's an example. Remember when Jesus cast out the demons out of a man and they asked for a home and he said, you can go into the pigs? And they did. And what, what did the, the demons ran the pigs off the cliff? So we know that they desire physical manifestation. That's, that's what they struggle for. That, there's one of the torments of an evil spirit is having no manifestation. And so they fight to have manifestation. Consequently, they want you, they want me to do their bidding. And now, now you know where the spiritual conflict comes from. But all that to say, yes, fallen angels were engaging humanity. And what, what is so awesome about this is God's response. God said, so the evil inclinations of man was to distort God's intent for marriage. One man, one woman. And God said, I will not even let the angels change that principle. And God shut him down. Now you've got to ask yourself, do you think God has changed his mind on marriage today? If he's going to shut down angelic beings who have fallen away and are on planet earth manifesting themselves with the intent of distorting and destroying what God said was a holy covenant and God says I won't let them do you think he'll let any government of this world change that definition that's my aha moment right there and by the way when the apostles were preaching the gospel during the Roman Empire, that whole empire had already given approval to every type of marriage outside of a man and woman. Up and including some of the Caesars were engaged in same-sex marriages. Caesars. And what was the church response to that? Well, in order to stay modern, we're going to have to identify with Rome? No, you actually have the resistance of the church, the writings that we have, standing up to the world government saying, we don't care what Rome says, the church doesn't do that. Are you connecting the dots today? We don't take our theological cues from culture. Even if we find that we're considered the minority, we don't. It's a biblical principle. That principle of marriage has stood in the face of angelic beings who tried to, 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 to corrupt it. It has stood in the face of the Babylonians and the Assyrians, and it has stood in the face of Rome and many other cultures. Here's what you learn is this. God's going to defend his institution. All you have to decide is which side of the aisle you want to be on that one. But you see here in the Bible, God says, I will defend the institution that I created for the purpose of it being a, a male and a female. And God says, I'll defend that even in the face of spiritual beings. And I'll put down the resistance and I will stop them. It's a powerful statement by God on how he stands. And, we're, and now you know how the New Testament writers could continue to write what they did. And everybody said, Amen. And we love you, Pastor. Okay, I was just making sure that the volume was equal. All right, number three, read it out loud. Man, 
man has this innate desire for eternity. We fight to live longer. And especially during those days when man was living so long, so finally God says, my spirit will not contend with human beings forever, for they are mortal, the days will be 120. So God has basically again said, I'm putting a lid on man here. I'm going to move him from 900 years, and his, he has the ability to maybe make it to 120, but the point being is God says, I'm through, because man is trying to do an eternity that doesn't involve God. Don't think that that's not still happening today. I'll give you one word. Cryogenics. I know, about 10 of you said, yep, and so us went, huh? Cryogenics is the ability for a person who has a serious sickness or disease, or there's absolutely nothing wrong with them, they might be near death just because of the aging, and they put themselves in a deep freeze. Cryogenics, they put themselves into a deep freeze with the intent that when the cure is found or the gene is discovered that can make a person live forever, they will be thawed out and resuscitated and be able to continue living in this life. And my response to that is, if this is your view of eternity, we're all doomed. <laughs> you really think in 100 years the world's going to be better than what it is today? Wow. The only thing I see is, is just things getting more complicated. But man fights for an eternity, and it's fight, man fights to, re, to get an eternity, but doesn't want an eternity with God because God, that means I have to give an account of my life. So they pursue, they pursue eternity with the hopes of no God. But as followers of Christ, I love what Paul said. Death, where is your sting? Death, you've been swallowed up in victory. He also wrote in Galatians, for me to live as Christ is to die as gain. Paul, in essence, was saying, hey, if you leave me alone, I'm just going to keep preaching Jesus. But if you want to take my life, then I'll just go live with him. <laughs> so, as a follower of Christ, I'm in a win-win spot. I get to keep living for him, or I get to go live with him. That's our view of eternity. And it's the age-old problem. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. <laughs> Have you noticed that? We just, I guess we're all just hoping for the rapture that we don't have to go through that door, right? <laughs> Number four, read it out loud. Because man was uniquely created by God, man, there was a passage in there that I'm sure upset some of you as you read it and went, what? The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. You know, you almost read that and go, wow, I never knew God threw in the towel. I never knew that God quit on me. And you know, you go, God, do you, do you still feel that way? Can I just, let's just accelerate things to the New Testament. When a person is hurt, how many know you get emotional? Even God gets emotional. And I'm going to show you why 
God felt this way at this moment. But let me, let me just help everybody so that you're not felt like you're just hanging here on this, okay? As you work through hurt, how many know you come to some, there's clarity as you work through your hurt. In your hurt, you know not to make significant decisions, but as you come out, and let me just say, can I tell you, God didn't follow, he didn't destroy everybody because he saved Noah's family, right? Okay, so we're going to get to that in a second. But the other part is this, God's grief was overcome with his love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Sure, God was grieved. How do you overcome that grief? With a love that is greater than your grief. Do you hear me? So why did this hurt God so deeply? Well, we don't have Genesis chapter 10. We don't have John chapter 1. We don't have, because none of that stuff has been written. So we have to look back from Genesis chapter 6 going backwards. Well, there's only five chapters. So where's the answer to this in Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 for this type of, 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 of verse that we just, where's the, where's the clarity? And it goes like this. Remember it says that God took dust and he took his breath and he breathed into that dust. Man is God breathed. There's only one other thing that God did like that, and it was the Word. We read that in Timothy. It says the Word is God-breathed, okay? So man is God's breath. Why did God do that? Because in order to have a relationship, God had to put something of himself in man so that man could connect to God, but so that God could connect to man. That's why it says he was created in the image of God. So God says that means you have to have my breath and so when this occurred, God gave a holy breath, and God had the stench of an unholy breath come back at him. And it was, it was God's breath distorted. Do you know how hurtful that had to be to God? God's saying, I didn't put my breath in anything but you. And you're using my breath. I know my breath. That's what you have. And you're using it. Every inclination of your heart is evil. You have taken a piece of me that I put in you. And you have wrecked it and distorted it. I did it to enjoy mankind. And you're using it to destroy mankind. See, God was seeing his breath come back at him distorted. It crushed God because he created man for fellowship. But in order to do that, he had to give man some of his qualities. God's, how could man do this? Why would man do this? Why is, and like I said, how do you overcome grief like that with a greater love? For God so loved the world, the world that was using his breath against him. My son will die for you. I gave you my breath. Now I'll give you my son. 
Man, if you don't have chills running up and down your spine right now, I can't help you. <laughs> wow. God gave us his breath, and when we messed that up, he gave us his son. Wow. And see, what happened is this. As God worked through that grief, we come to the last point. Man's choices determine man's destiny. In verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why? Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. What you see here is this. No matter how bad the environment is around us, we have a free will that God has given to us. Unlike anything he's done in creation, we have a free will. And we have the ability to stand in some of the darkest places of life and go, I am not going to become a part of the problem. I'm going to stay the solution. We have the ability to go, that's right, everything around me, but I am not caving. I choose not to cave. And here's it goes back to what I said a little earlier. And God has made sure, has made sure that there is no angelic being that has fallen that is greater than his, than your will. Through him, he says, those beings I've already tied up for eternity and wait for judgment. So you don't have anything that hell can throw at you that overwhelms you. You have to quit for hell to win. That hell has nothing that it can throw your direction that will just flat out overwhelm you. God says, I've taken those beings off the table. And God says this. I can take that breath that you have that is corrupted. Every inclination of the heart is evil. And he says, I can give you my son's blood. Oh, man. And you know what? It's an act of my free will. It's why the Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive. My eternity rests in, it's in my hands to make that choice. It's not a mystery. It's not luck, it's not fate. God says, I put that in your hands. You choose your eternity today. Let me tell you as we wrap this up. There may be days that we find ourselves more and more of a minority in the belief systems that we hold and we live by. But can I tell you this? Be a Noah, don't you dare quit. Don't quit. I don't know how God will make a way, but I just know this. If he can give Noah a way through a flood called an ark, he can get you through whatever you're going through. But don't quit. Stay faithful. And everybody said amen.